0: is going into a new church year. New church year, this isn't January the 1st. Well, the church year goes from December through November with the first part of the year as Advent. Then we go into the Epiphany, then the Lenten season, and the Sundays after Pentecost. And last Sunday was the last Sunday in the church year Talking about uh, Jesus' return on Judgment Day. Today, and it is, what is the date? November the 26th in the year of our Lord, 2018. We're taking a look at the first Sunday in Advent, and we're going to do something a little different today than we normally do. I keep telling you there are four lessons. Uh, One of them, of course, is the Old Testament, one is an epistle. Normally, one is the gospel. This particular First Sunday in Advent, there's two gospel readings. The one sounds very much like Palm Sunday. It's talking about that. And the other one is talking about, well, when Judgment Day comes, uh, take a look at the fig tree and all the trees. You know when summer is coming, well, there's signs for Judgment Day also. What we've decided, though, is for this particular broadcast, we're gonna take a look at the psalm. Yes, every week has a psalm, and this one is from Psalm 25. It's by David, and without further ado, let's get into it, because it's an appropriate psalm for the first Sunday in Advent. "'To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul,' Now, we're reading from the ESV, and the word Lord is capitalized. What I mean by that isn't just the first letter, but every letter, which means this is the name of God given to Moses on Mount Sinai at the time of the burning bush, Yahweh, or I am who I am. And David is saying to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Now, what does that mean? It means that he is going to praise God. And verse 2 talks about the biggest part of praising God. Oh, my God, in you I... Now, what do you think the next word is? In you I obey? No, that would be law. In you I obey trust. When you trust someone, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you trust that they're a human being or that they're alive. Uh, what it is, is you trust their word. And this is what proper faith is. It's a trust in a specific word in regard to Jesus Christ, and that is promises. Promises. This is very important to understand that one could say that I trust you were born, but that's not much trust. you got plenty of evidence for that because you're seeing the person. But if somebody makes you a promise for which you have no evidence, especially if it's a future promise, like he'll say, tomorrow I'll pick you up at noon and we'll go to McDonald's, you will trust that but it's because you're trusting the person who says it when david says in you i trust that means that there are specific promises that god has given to david and david promise uh, david trusts them in fact the verse goes on let me not be put to shame Let not my enemies exalt over me. Now, the word exalt there actually means to conquer in the sense of let them be over me and I'm going to be below them. No. Even when at times individuals attempt to put us to shame, and Jesus says that in the Beatitudes, that you will be persecuted for my name's sake, We don't consider that being put to shame, as Christians, as we kind of participate in some of the sufferings that Jesus did on our behalf. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Well, they they may be prideful of what they're doing, and I'm sure the Pharisees were at the foot of the cross, saying, finally, we're rid of this guy, this carpenter from Nazareth, who says that he is God? In, in fact, in one of the Old Testament readings, uh, Luke 19, I've already mentioned it's the Palm Sunday kind of reading. And as Jesus is coming to Jerusalem on a donkey, the whole multitude of the disciples begin to rejoice and praise God for a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And, of course, those works were done by Jesus. And they say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees says, Teacher, rebuke your disciples because that's blasphemy, the way they're talking to you. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The fact of the matter is, is this was a promise as found in the Old Testament that Jesus would enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the fact of the matter is, we are not be put to shame when we stand up for Jesus. In fact, verse 3 of Psalm, and we're taking a look at Psalm 25, underscores that. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Now, a lot of kids may not understand the word wantonly, but uh, these are people who, by their free choice, are treacherous towards God. Remember, Jesus was arrested at night in the Garden of Gethsemane when the crowds weren't around. They did a almost a secret trial and then they got Pilate to agree to crucify him, and then that's how they went public. We are not ashamed, but those who are treacherous against Jesus Christ, they will be ashamed. In fact, last week it talked about that on the Day of Judgment, every eye will see Jesus, including those who crucified him, And they will be mourning. That's when they recognize the shame that they have done. But by then it's too late. Verse 4. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. That could be a verse used at the top of every sermon. My understanding of a sermon is to help the people begin to think like god rather than to think like their old adam so for example i start off many of my sermons if not all of them with a question that even a lot of lutherans aren't sure what the answer is and the reason is they're not thinking like god they're thinking instead according to their old adam like for example yesterday i began the sermon by saying All right, Jesus is God. Is uh, is it true that there are things that Jesus does not know as God? And, of course, nobody thought there was. Until I read the text where it says, on the last day, even Jesus doesn't know when that is going to occur. Now, wait a minute. If Jesus is God, he's supposed to be omniscient. What does it mean he doesn't know when the last day is going to occur? And so what the sermon went into is one of the distinctions we make about Jesus, like he's divine and he's human, uh, like he's prophet, priest, and king, like he does uh, works that are active obedience and passive obedience. But the one I brought up yesterday is his different states. States, what's that mean? his state of humiliation in contrast to his state of exaltation. In a state of humiliation, yes, Jesus was still God. He certainly possessed the attributes of knowing all things, being everywhere, and being all-powerful, but he did not make use of them in his state of humiliation. For example, God never gets tired. Jesus slept. God never gets hungry. Jesus ate. So there were surprises for Jesus uh, in his state of humiliation. This is when he became incarnate and became a human being. He did not lose his divine attributes. He simply did not make use of them all the time. Now, sometimes he did. Remember, they were on the lake and there was a big storm, disciples thought they were going to drown, Jesus stood up, peace, be still. that That's God stopping the storm. I, I would use that as one example where he did use his uh, divine powers, although most of the times he calls upon the Father, who therefore does many of the miracles. But be that as it may, getting back to make me to know your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. The best example I can tell you where somebody had to learn the ways of the Lord is the book of Job. Here's a man who considered himself to be righteous, and then he goes through all these sufferings. Why is God doing that? And by the time you get to the end of the book of Job, you find out God was doing that, to bring to Job a better understanding of God than he had. In fact, he himself even says that. I heard you by the hearing of the ear. In other words, I heard rumors about you. But now I see you eye to eye, face to face. Therefore, and what happens when you realize the true God, I repent in dust and ashes. Because... You understand the paths of the Lord, one path to the Lord, and that's the broad path Jesus talks about, is for those who think that they can get right with the Lord by their works. Every religion in the world teaches that, that has a personal God. Your works will make a difference. Christianity doesn't teach that. The path is the narrow way that Jesus is on. And on that narrow path, he finds you as a lost sheep, puts you on his shoulders, and carries you home. That's what we mean when we talk about a sermon, that we need to help the listeners understand God's ways and his paths. Because a lot of times they're contrary to what our old Adam thinks. It continues in verse 5 of Psalm 25, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are what? One can say, well, you are the God who tells me what to do in order to be saved. No, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. And it kind of brings you back to that picture of the lost sheep. He's lost, he doesn't know where his shepherd is or the rest of the sheep, and he waits all day long, and then the shepherd comes and finds him. But the important part here, lead me in your truth and teach me that you are the God of my salvation. In other words, you are not the individual who is saving yourself. God is the one who saves you. Verse six. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Now, we've talked quite a bit about this a lot of times with Mark Smith, about the difference between justice, mercy, and grace. Justice is if you want a God of justice, you get what you deserve, which is temporal and eternal punishment. If you have a God of mercy, you do not get what you deserve, namely that punishment. But if you have a God of grace, you get what you do not deserve, the forgiveness of sins, the robe of righteousness, and the countless promises that God gives to you that never will whatever happens to you, not work out for your good. So, it's not that David is telling God, you need to be merciful to me. He's saying, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Now, many people, one of their favorite verses is John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And that word world also includes unbelievers. God loves unbelievers. That That's something that we just cannot understand because that's the enemies of God. Uh, how often can you say, I love my enemies? No, our, our, our love is pitiful in comparison to the love of God. Now, when you're asking God to remember his mercy and his steadfast love, what specifically are we asking God to remember? Well, it starts off in verse 7 with what we don't want him to remember. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, and instead, according to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Now, what is David talking about here? God is omniscient, which means he can't forget anything. So what does it mean, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, and instead remember me? Well, the word remember can be talking about a memory But that's not what this remember is talking about. For example, and I've used this before as a good example. Let's say, this isn't true, but let's say it was, that my wife's birthday was yesterday. So she waits till today, and then she looks at me and says, Tom, did you remember my birthday? And I said, oh, yeah, I remembered it all day. I had it on my mind. (laughs) That's not what she would be talking about. When we remember someone's birthday or their anniversary, etc., we tend to give them a gift. That's how we remember it, by doing something. So when we ask God not to remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions, we're asking Him not to hold us accountable for them, not to do something against us because of those sins. And therefore, Instead, to remember me. This is really important to understand. That in Christianity, God remembers you, not your sins. And what does it mean he remembers you? It means that you're getting gifts and blessings from God each and every day. Whether you're recognizing them or not. But as a Christian... God is your father. You're his child, adopted child, and therefore he doesn't remember your sins. He doesn't hold you accountable for them. He remembers you. Verse 8, Psalm 25. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. And we've already talked about what the way is. It's that narrow path. That leads to Jesus, upon which Jesus is on. And that's why the Lord is good and he's upright. Now, upright has a kind of sense of justice. When we say the God of justice we don't want, we're talking about a God that gives us what we deserve. But when He forgives our sins. He still does that in a just way. He just doesn't say, oh, your sins are forgiven. No. His promise was that when we sin, death will be the result. So he justly makes sure that there is a death and that we participate in that death. Well, the death is that of Jesus Christ. How do you participate in that death? Through faith and specifically baptism, you're buried with Christ so that just as he is risen from the dead, you will be also. That's the purpose of a sermon, to instruct sinners in the way of God that is good and upright. Verse 9, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. That's best seen in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, where God compliments the sheep, not for their good works, but for all the fruit of the Holy Spirit that they did. That is a good work inspired by the Holy Spirit out of love for Jesus Christ. And that's God leading us to be humble, Humble means, from the point of view of Christianity, that we don't really have anything to offer God. In other words, we are definitely, as the Beatitudes talk about, we don't have that which is necessary to offset our sins. And to realize that not only creates humility, it leads to repentance, And that's what it means to teach the humble his way. Now, his way refers to God's way. How do the humble believers in Jesus Christ, how do they approach God? In repentance. Because what is repentance? It's contrition over sin, but it also includes our trust that God has taken away that sin because of Jesus Christ. That's the way of God. Now, verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. See, the way of the Lord, how you approach him, are built on his steadfast love in dying for your sins, and his faithfulness in keeping his promises to you. That's why when we talk about Jesus, we can say Jesus is the gift that keeps on giving. But who is that for? Uh, Verse 10 is the ending of the psalm reading for the first Sunday in Advent, and it reads, for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Now, what does that mean? That sounds like we fall back under the law, that God will be loving towards you and faithful if you keep his covenant. But what is his covenant? Well, in the Bible, there are two covenants. Both are found in the Old Testament books and the New Testament books. The one covenant is kind of what we would call a work righteousness covenant. As long as you're Righteous in your works, and and that would be, of course, Exodus 24. The people say, all these things we will do and obey. Well, that didn't last very long. It's not that covenant. It's the new covenant. And that new covenant actually begins in Genesis 3 with the promise to the serpent, the devil, that, yes, you will bruise the foot of the Messiah but he will crush your head. And then promise after promise comes about to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to Solomon, to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, all referring to the fact that the new covenant is based only on the promises of God because we can't keep our promises to God. We keep breaking them because we're sinners. So if you keep his covenant, it means you trust that he has done all the work for your salvation. And you keep his testimonies. What's testimony? He testifies to you that he is your savior. He testifies to you that you cannot cooperate in your salvation and you certainly do not contribute to your salvation. Psalm 25 is a beautiful example of true Christianity, and it's found in the Old Testament. In the main one, the main verse, verse 5, you are the God of my salvation. And that's why when we are attempting to bring people into the Holy Christian Church, the main message is how Jesus is the God of their salvation. So that's the first Sunday in Advent, the psalm. We hardly ever go over the psalm, but this would be a powerful sermon, I think, because it shows you how God thinks. Uh, Tomorrow, uh, we're continuing our practice with Pastor Mark Smith, where we will look at a hymn selected for the first Sunday in Advent. It's Savior of the Nations Come. Now we'll be looking
1: at Tomorrow. Until then, God bless.